Every action that we take is going to be seen by the unseen. Every word that you speak will be heard by those that are not noticed. Whether it be your children, your family, your friends, co-workers, strangers, or God alone in the secret place, there is nothing that you will say or do that will not be seen or heard. There's nothing that you have said or have done that was not seen or heard. You can do it intentionally, you can do it negligently. Either way, if you publicly claim to be a Christian and follow Christ, you are giving representation as such. So the question is, what are we showing others? What are we showing God? What are we saying to others? And what are we saying to God? What example are you setting in the little parts of your life? And are they honoring to God or dishonoring to God in your victories and your failures? You know, every person in this room, every person alive has ever lived or will ever live, we're all prone to something. We're all prone to overlooking and losing awareness of the little things in our lives. The little things that we might deem insignificant or small, it's not worth our time or energy to really put any focus on that, and God would disagree with that. Throughout all of Scripture, God uses little things to do big things. He uses what we would think insignificant to do monumental things in our lives. Just a couple of really quick examples that come to mind is he used, of all the millions of people on this planet, he used one man to lead a nation out of slavery in Egypt. Just one man. We heard a parable of a hundred sheep that one goes missing, and God valued one enough to lead the 99. God values the little things. And the ways that we think, we speak, the tone that we use, we need to value those too. It speaks to the position of our heart, and too many aspects of our life go unnoticed and neglected until people point them out to us. There's a lot of things that we do that we don't even realize that we do until people use them to make a joke or point them out or just say, hey, did you know you did this? If we don't pay attention to the things that we deem small, it's going to vanish from our awareness. And the funny thing is, that's what the world is going to use to describe you, to define you, and that's what your identity becomes to them. Whether you intended it to be that way or not, that's your identity to the world that you're presenting. There is significance in the small things. While preparing for this sermon, I looked up some facts that were pretty interesting or some statistics. And did you know on average, the average healthy human takes about 22,000 breaths every single day? If you knew that, congratulations, useless trivia. If you didn't know that, unless you're holding it, you don't even really know that you're doing it. It just happens, right? 22,000 breaths every single day. And if you were to remove one of those breaths, you remove something that is vital to the entire body. There is value in the little things. And another way to look at it, another perspective is, that's 22,000 free gifts that God gives you every day whether we acknowledge them or not. And God's not asking us to, thank you, Lord. Thank you for that one, Jesus. 
He's not asking us to acknowledge every single inhale, exhale. But it pays and it means something to acknowledge that what they are in the small things that we're given. So what are we doing with the small gifts in our lives? Are we being good stewards of the small gifts? Are we actively looking for and avoiding small trip hazards in our lives, the pebbles in our path? How can we see the value in the little things the way that God sees them? You know, my, when I was growing up, my grandma would always tell us anytime we would leave a family event or her house, she had one little thing that she would say to us, and it, it will never leave my mind. She would just simply say, be good, be careful, don't get lost. And until about five years ago, that was just a very pleasant memory of my grandmother. However, five years ago, it, it changed into something that was extremely significant for my spiritual walk and just my everyday practice. And, and in that, God showed me my three points today. It's three daily practices to help us gain awareness of the little things in our lives. Number one, be good. Imitate Christ, walk by faith. And when I say be good, I'm not talking about being a good person. I'm not talking about holding the door open for your spouse or helping someone who's in need financially or who might need shelter, feeding the homeless. I'm not talking about putting others before yourself and self-sacrifice. Those are all great things. But the morality of man does not bring about the righteousness of God. What I am talking about is the small behaviors in your life, known or unknown, identified or unidentified, that either dishonor or honor God, because you're going to do one or the other. Our Father must be the focus of everything that we do. Too commonly, we brush off the small stuff, and there's a common phrase that's applicable in a lot of contexts, you know, don't sweat the small stuff. We've all heard that. But in this context, I would say we probably should sweat the small stuff because God values it, so we should value it in turn. If you were to take one marble and hold it in your hand, and you couldn't put it down until the end of the day, there'd be a little bit of a learning curve, but more than likely, you could complete all your normal daily routine with that marble in your hand. You might have to use two fingers to hold it and, you know, use only three fingers to use your hand, but you could probably get through your day without much problem. But if you were to put ten marbles in that hand, very likely, depending on what you've got going on and what your job is and your day looks like, you're probably going to be a little inconvenienced or maybe even be limited down to one hand. The little things matter, and when we let them compound, they matter even more. We must pay attention to the thoughts, to our actions, to our responses. It's no secret. In Matthew 12, 34, it says, For the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So the question is, what are you feeding your heart? What are you filling it with? Are you filling it with the world, or are you filling it with the word of God? We should absolutely be praying, reading our Bibles. We should be meditating on what we read daily. If you read one verse daily, one verse is more than zero. You don't have the excuse of saying, I don't have time to read a chapter, or I don't have time to study it and get a notepad out. Reading one verse is more than zero. To be good, we must acknowledge the importance of honoring God in the little aspects of our lives just as much as we do the large aspects. Jesus himself didn't do things on a grand stage. In his ministry, he was personal. He was one-on-one. -on -one. In Matthew, we read that he even told the disciples not to tell people that he was the Christ. He did this because he wanted everything he did to glorify the Father and the Father alone. 
He didn't want the glory. He wanted it to be noticed and given to God. Everything in his life was done to glorify the Father, and nothing was too small to be overlooked. The Bible itself is great for instruction and guidance on how we can be good as a Christian. From cover to cover, we can find all sorts of things, and we don't have time to go cover to cover, verse by verse. But there was one section of Scripture that I really wanted to focus in on. It In 2 Timothy chapter 2, 14 through 26, I'm not going to read all of it, but I wanted to go over a few of the points. We're told, don't quarrel over words. Quarreling over words ruins the hearer. We're told, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, unashamed, rightly handling the truth. And notice how it says, do your best. It doesn't say present yourself perfectly to God. It doesn't say flawlessly present yourself to God. It says, do your best. And this isn't an excuse to slack off and say, oh, I can get away with a few things. That's not your best. It says, do your best. God knows you're not perfect. God knows that you will fail, and that's okay. But we are to do our best, presenting ourselves to God, approved, unashamed, rightly handling the truth. We're told to avoid irreverent babble. If you don't know the definition of irreverent, don't feel bad, because I had to look it up. It simply means to disrespect something that is normally taken seriously. And believe me, God takes his creation serious. Every one of you was fearfully and wonderfully made. God made you to be a beautiful, unique person. And he takes you serious. He takes his creation serious, and we need to do the same. Something that I do and a practice that I have in my own life is whenever I'm having a conversation with somebody, or I'm talking to anybody, even right now, I have a, a lot of you might know I have a kind of a fun imagination, but I'll picture over anybody's head just a banner. If the banner is floating over the head, and it simply says, Jesus died for me. And I'll tell you, it has changed the way I talk to people. It has changed the way that I conduct myself when I'm talking to people. And it changes the way that I talk about people when other people come up in conversation. Because Jesus died for everyone. We're called to cleanse ourselves from what is dishonorable. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Now that word pursue, it doesn't mean just to uh, go get something. When you go to the store, you don't pursue bananas. You don't pursue a clean pair of socks or underwear. You can go get those things, that's great, but to pursue something, it's an intense, intentional act. You will not give up until you claim that, until you possess that. You are pursuing it because you want it that badly that you won't quit until it's yours. And we're told to pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. We're told to be kind, not quarrelsome. Don't argue with people. We're told to endure evil with patience. When was the last time you had a ton of patience when a trial was dropped in your lap? Because we need to endure with patience. It could last a day, a week. It could last 10 years. It could have been going on your entire life. But your life is but a whisper in the span of eternity. It never ends. You can be patient for this. And then the last two verses in that span of Scripture, in uh, verse 25 and 26, says, correct opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil 
after being captured by him to do his will. An opponent is someone who doesn't follow God. You're either a friend to God or you're an enemy of God. That's it. And if we're to correct opponents, it's telling us we need to correct those who are not following Christ with gentleness. We need to be pursuing righteousness, faith, and love and showing them kindness, patience, and gentleness in correction. They don't understand the same things that someone who has the Holy Spirit in them understands. And in doing this, it tells us that God may perhaps grant them repentance. God may lead them out of the snare of the devil to salvation. And that leads me to my second point. We need to be careful. Be careful, study, be wise of the devil's schemes. I may be the first one to break this news to you. Maybe I'm not. But you need to know that the devil knows Scripture, and he is wiser than all of us. He has been at this game a whole lot longer. He knows it better. He is wiser. He is more cunning than we are. And it cannot be overstated the importance of knowing the schemes of the enemy in your individual life. Because he will exploit every vulnerability that you don't know you have. I'm going to say it again. The devil will exploit every single vulnerability that you don't know you have. In every way that the Lord is good, the devil is, is evil. In every way that God works in love, the devil in hate. God builds you up while Satan tears you down. God confirms and the devil confuses. God works in truth and the devil in lies. The Bible tells us the enemy prowls as a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. You must know who your adversary is. During my time in the military, I, I was part of three different career fields. As my unit would change or convert from one mission to the next to the next, I did everything from maintenance on a B-1 bomber to being an air crew and doing in-flight refueling. And then the most recent one was I was a geospatial intelligence analyst, which is a super fancy way of saying I took a lot of information from a lot of places and I put it together and made one Intel product and I would brief generals and whoever else thought they were important. During the second part of my time as an Intel analyst, I was able to join a specialty unit called an aggressor squadron. And there's only two in the Air Force that do the aggressor mission. And simply put, the role of an aggressor is to learn, train in, and replicate the enemy. Very plainly put, I was a federally trained criminal that had permission to break into U.S. military installations worldwide and not get in trouble for it. It was a lot of fun, and I never got caught. So what you would do is, for about a month to six weeks, depending on where the target was, we would send out emails, we would try to hack into the computer systems, and then after about a month of that, we would send out a team known as a close access team. So we would go out and we would attempt to use criminal tactics to gain access onto base in illegal ways. We would make fake identification cards. We would go onto base and attempt to acquire information. Acquire sounds better than steal, so we had to say acquire. And the skinny of the whole thing was Every building on a military base has an end-of-day security checklist. If you're in the military, you might know what I'm talking about. If you're not, 
you got to pay attention. The end of day security checklist is very simple. They're laminated. You can use a dry erase to check off everything that you do. Very easy tasks. And if the military members were disciplined enough to pay attention to each one of those small tasks, an aggressor would never succeed. Because we didn't create vulnerabilities. We only exploited what was given to us. So it begs the question, what cracks, what vulnerabilities do you have in your life that the devil can exploit? I'm talking about this. Oop, missed my page. How easily is it for the devil to trip you up? The way to get disciplined is to read the word. Read the word, pray, spend time with God. The things that are the most neglected in a Christian life. God gave it to us, and don't think the devil doesn't know that we neglect it. You can't live in peace, joy, and victory, and you can't present yourselves in a way that glorifies God if you're spiritually unprepared. It's, it's still spiritual warfare. How easy is it for Satan to trip you up, to lose your temper, to cause you to lose your focus, to create an insecurity, make you feel worthless? Because he has done a bang-up job in this world having you believe that you are as worthless as this world would have you believe and that you're not good enough. He'll have you aimlessly pursuing the things that won't bring you joy, peace, or victory. I'll give you an example, and it's an extremely low-hanging fruit, but it's one that probably all of you could relate to whether you have kids or not. You may be having this fight today. Maybe you woke up this morning and your kids weren't acting right. They woke up late. They put on two different shoes. They didn't eat breakfast till you were walking out the door. And you left home upset, impatient, angry. You get to church and you hear an amazing sermon, one that moves you in a way that God's never moved you before. One that you can only describe to other people that felt the same move. Sermon's over. You're talking with friends in the back of the sanctuary or in the foyer. And your kids are still running amok. They're running around the building. You can't control them. They're being loud. They're tripping over people. And you lose your patience. You're embarrassed. And you start getting angry. And the joy and peace that you felt not even 15 minutes ago is lost and you're lost in your anger. So you get your kids gathered up, you take them out to the car, and you begin to berate your children. You start yelling at them, you're grounded, I can't believe you would embarrass me like that. And you let your child steal your joy for being a child. We need to recognize these moments. These are still pebbles thrown into my path. I've got five kids. And I still have to fight to capture my thoughts to be slow to anger, to respond in a way that brings glory to God, respond in a way where I can be an example to my children the way that Christ was an example to me, to be patient, to be gentle, to be kind, to pursue love in that moment. Because make no mistake about it, your kids belong to God before they belong to you. You belong to God before you belong to your parents. We're simply taking care of them. And it's up to us, as we've read earlier, it's up to us to train them in ways that make them wise for salvation through faith. You know, perhaps the things that trip you up aren't even bad things. 
Maybe you have a compounding distraction in your life or distractions. If you have no time to read the Bible, no time to pray, but you can find 15 minutes to scroll through social media but not engage, if you can find an entire weekend to binge watch the new season of your favorite show, but you can't find any time to read one verse, then your priorities might be just a little bit out of whack. Is your life so full that you can't even wake up 15 minutes earlier to say a prayer or to read a chapter because you wouldn't get a full eight hours of sleep? We must learn the schemes of the enemy in our individual lives. In Matthew 10, 16, it says, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Maybe you find yourself in a group of friends that are good friends, but they're not followers of Christ. They don't try to get you to do anything that's wrong or illegal. But you're the only one in that group that claims to be a Christian. And you start to find yourself that the conversation becomes a spiritually unhealthy one. You don't need to run away, but you need to identify what's happening for what it is. You have a decision on how to conduct yourself in that moment. You can either honor God or honor the world. You can't do both. You can't stand on the fence. You're on one side or the other. It doesn't even matter who you're talking to. Sometimes the hardest people to talk to are the ones that you're closest to that should understand the best. You could be talking to your children, maybe to your parents, your closest friends that know more about you than anybody else outside of God. It doesn't matter who. You can conduct yourself to either honor or dishonor the Lord. Those little moments speak to the position of your heart, how you prioritize how important God is to you, and how important you prioritize following the example of Christ is, is to you. And that leads me to my third and final point. Don't get lost. To whom or to where do you look for your guidance and your direction? You know, I'm not going to give my uh, testimony today. It's, it can be quite long. I've been through a lot of things between police department, military, and other things in my personal life. But for these next few points, it pays to know that growing up, I was in church. I don't have a memory early enough where church wasn't a part of my life. I enjoyed it. I loved it. There wasn't any bad things about it. I had amazing men and women who taught me and brought me up. But I also had an intense desire to fit in. I wanted to fit in with the social circles in my life. Whether it was at church or away from church, I would do anything. I called myself a social chameleon when I look back at it. I could change my posture. It was very easy. I could change the jokes that I laughed at, what jokes I would say to the people, the ways that I talked, the tone in which I used, the way that I would unrighteously judge other people. The way that I lived caused me to be lost, depressed, I never felt fully accepted by the groups that are, were around me. And I felt as if I wasn't even there, it wouldn't matter. Nobody would even notice if Richard wasn't there or not. And this isn't speaking poorly about the people I was around. I had amazing friends. I had amazing people around me. This is because I put my identity and my worth in my social acceptance over Christ. I was trying to be part of two kingdoms. And all in an effort to fit in, I would go to bed every night feeling ashamed. 
I was left in constant self-loathing and hunger for the things that would never satisfy me. In August of 2017, my best friend of 26 years invited me to a men's encounter. And ironically enough, that's five years this weekend. And at that men's encounter, God got a hold of me in a way that you can't understand unless he's gotten a hold of you. On that Saturday night, I remember thinking to myself, I want to be a misfit for Christ. I don't want to be a chameleon. Like I said, I have an imagination that can be fun sometimes. But the word misfit popped into my head. And I looked up the definition of misfit. The definition of misfit is a person whose behavior or attitude sets them apart from others in an uncomfortably conspicuous way. I'll read it again. (laughs) A misfit is a person whose behavior or attitude sets them apart from others in an uncomfortably conspicuous way. Every day, I pray that the Lord helps me to be a misfit for Christ in my world. I want to be set apart from this world. When I was a teenager, at the end of my high school time and end of youth group, I knew that I had a call to be in ministry. I didn't know what that would look like, but I knew that that was a call on my life. I had a lot of growing up to do, a lot of maturing to do between then and now. But since God got a hold of my heart, I have found acceptance in the ways that I never found. I have found joy. I have found peace. And it's because all I did was put my identity in Christ. When your identity is in Christ, you won't desire anything of this world. Because although we are in this world, there's nothing worth desiring of this world. When you're looking for your identity and your value, you're going to be left lost, devastated, confused, and doomed for hell ultimately. When you place your identity and value in Christ, you're going to be left fulfilled with meaning. And you're going to have meaning in ways that are not understood by those that don't have it. Taking direction and guidance is a really easy thing to do. Kids can do it playing Simon Says. Taking direction and guidance, you're just simply following the leader. And if Christ isn't your leader, then the world is. The easiness about it is what also makes it dangerous. Because you have been given as another gift the free will to make a choice. You can either choose to honor the world, which will demand everything from you and leave you devastated. Or you can choose the word, which simply asks that you believe in God's goodness, asks you to put your faith in Jesus, and trust him one day, one step, and one breath at a time. If you just consider the little that God asks of you, and I'm not talking about the depth of meaning or the eternal importance of the little, but the little simple physical act of obedience that God asks. He simply asks you to trust him one step at a time. The Bible says he's a lamp unto our feet. You can get one step with a lamp. Okay, got one. Here's the next step. You don't have to worry about steps two, three, four, and beyond. God says, don't worry about tomorrow. Today has enough worry in itself. And you would think that we only need to worry about one step and one day at a time, 
And that would be plenty to alleviate the pressures and the stress of worrying about anything beyond that. But we are humans, and we're dumb sometimes, and we want to be in control. So we bring a lot of stress and worry on ourselves when God only asks you to trust him. Now, I had mentioned that I knew I had a calling on my life to be in ministry. And shortly after that men's encounter, I went to work one morning, and God spoke something into my heart. He said, Richard, you've known me your entire life. You've known who I am. You've known that I exist. You know that I'm very real. But your entire life, you've kept one foot in the water and one foot on shore because you wanted to feel safe. If you're going to truly follow me this time, I require you to put both feet in the water and trust that I will keep you afloat. And so I did. For the first time in my life, five years ago, at 35 years old, I said, Lord, I'm all in. Both feet are in the water. I know that you'll keep me afloat. You've taken me through everything that I've been through. You trained me in ways that I didn't know I needed to be trained. I trust you. Since then, shortly after that, we started coming to the well here in uh, spring of 2018. And on a Wednesday night, Pastor Branson was preaching. And I don't remember the message, but I remember one thing that he said. I remember he, he challenged us to be good stewards and to be in service. And he said, you know what? It's crazy how we can't get anybody to hold a door open on a Sunday morning. And I was like, I can do that. That's easy. I can hold the door, people, hold the door open and push people in as they walk, right? That's easy. <laughs> so the next Sunday, I started holding a door open. I would get the kids involved. We'd have contests on who could get the more people coming through their door versus Troy's door. And, and doing that is how I met Troy. If you don't know Troy, he's an amazing man. He's one of our deacons. And during these moments, during these Sunday mornings of holding doors open and competing, I learned from Troy that there was also a need for reliable, consistent ushers to help with tithe and offering. So when he would be gone on a missions trip, or maybe he got sick, or he had something to tend to, there was someone that knew the routine, that knew what to do, knew how to handle it, that he could rely on. I was like, yeah, it's a little bit more intense than holding the door open, but I can hand an offering bag. I went to public school. I can count people and take attendance, right? So I did that too. did that for a while. And about a year after that, Pastor Branson felt called to open up his own church in Winfield, and if you don't know, Branson was at the time in charge of the youth group. Hannah was the children's ministry director. And so there was a need in two different places. And God reminded me of the call that I had on my life. And he reminded me of all the training and all the building up that he did and everything that I thought was the worst things that a human could go through that I needed to be in the position of ministry that I'm in. And so I got a hold of Pastor Joplin. And I said, Pastor, I... I think this is my time to step up. And so we had co-directors for the children's ministry. It's myself, Jan Johnson, and Kim Bailey, who's now at the Lighthouse Church. And about a year after that, I was blessed enough and uh, seen in the favor of God enough to be given the title of Next Generation Pastor. And a year later, really 10 months later since then, I'm now up here giving a sermon that I didn't know was a sermon given to me two years ago. And it's all because I put both feet in the water. I took a step of faith that the worship team would come. I made up my mind 
I put both feet in the water, and I trusted God with each next step. I trusted God with each next day. When you do that, there's no ifs, ands, or buts. Your life will change. When you give every little aspect of your life to God, your life will change. He knows the growth that you need. He knows the ways that you need to mature. And all you have to do is be open enough to trusting him and follow his lead. The world would want you to believe that you have to give up everything to follow God. That being a Christian is a ball and chain. It's problematic. It's painful. It it stinks. But when you put your faith in Christ, you lose nothing and you gain everything. Believing that is one of Satan's biggest lies, and it makes you nothing more than a victim of having a vulnerability exploited. Ephesians 2 tells us that we are saved by grace through faith. All we need to do is believe in Christ, repent, and follow him. That's it. It's that simple act of obedience. It's a simple act to follow through with a gift that he gives us so freely. Freely is the 22,000 breaths that you're given every single day. And you have a choice in it. You can choose on how you spend each one of those breaths just as you get to choose how you spend the free gift of salvation. If you don't know my God, I would ask that you would consider getting to know him. Consider taking that small step of faith today. Don't worry about what anybody else is thinking. They don't control your eternity. It doesn't matter if it's your parent, your friend, someone that would make fun of you if you did come forward. It's between you and God. How much will you honor or dishonor God in this moment? If you're a Christian and you claim publicly to be one and you feel yourself growing complacent, not disciplined in the little things of your life, maybe you need to come forward and repent of things and have God sew up a crack or a vulnerability that you have for getting exploited, a distraction in your life, to reprioritize. Wherever you fit in, just know that God loves you. He is patient. But this might be the last service that you ever sit in. It might be the last message. Only God the Father knows when Jesus is getting sent back. Are you honoring God in what you speak? what you do, how you act, and are you being the example of Christ the way that he was for us?